the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. Hi, everybody, and welcome to Planted with Sarah Pion. I'm Sarah Pion, your host, and we are on episode 21. And today, my guest is Marie Momarquette. Welcome, Marie. Thank you for being here today. Um, Thank you so much for having me, Sarah. Oh, you're so welcome. It's a pleasure. So a little bit about Marie. She is the co-founder of MD Numbers Incorporated, a family of vertically integrated cannabis brands, MD Farms, Marie's Deliverables, and Legacy Coterie that provides a range of goods and services to the California supply chain retail customers, and equity community. Marie is a legacy cannabis operator who's been passionate about the plant for over 13 years. Her cannabis business expertise and equity activism have put her in the national spotlight. After graduating from the University of Tennessee with a BA in political science and psychology, she moved to California from Nashville in 2010. Over the last decade, Marie has created several successful cannabis businesses along with her brother, Alan Hackett, with whom she co-founded MD Numbers Incorporated and its subsidiaries. Marie and Alan are also minority owners of Cannabis Express, having helped build one of the Bay Area's biggest delivery providers. In addition to developing and scaling successful cannabis businesses, Marie is focused on being an advocate for social justice and equity in the industry. She's an advisor to the Cannabis Equity Program for Success Centers and offers monthly tours to MD Farms for equity applicants. Marie's goals... Well, we'll talk about the goals because we I have for 2020 in there to expand MD's numbers and MD Farms capacity, develop new properties and build more equity brands, advising, supporting and championing equity in everywhere possible. Thank you so much for being here. And how how did 2020 go and what are you looking at for 2021 with those goals? Because I know it's been a crazy year for all of us having to be a little bit nimble. Totally. I think that... Uh what you said earlier it's definitely the year of the pivot or understanding you know what you do really really well and where you need to grow more and learn more and um yeah I think 2020 for me was a whirlwind so many things were going amazingly well um where prices were higher than they've ever been with bulk cannabis and the farm hit some records producing more than we've ever produced but at the same time we were dealing with so many you know social injustices of course and different things on the equity front in san francisco where a lot of our equity applicants are struggling to get open or struggling to find good partners so for me it was definitely a catch-22 in some ways it was the best year of my life and in some ways it was like a whirlwind of uh of uh we say I'm just like constantly putting out fires. I'm just like a firewoman everywhere. <laughs> fire all the time. So it's been a whirlwind, but I definitely think that like we were saying with 2021, 2020, the year of the pivot is super pivotal. No pun intended. <laughs> right. <laughs> I know. It's been a really, really interesting year just seeing. I think that times like this really, how would you say it? They kind of, they separate the wheat from the chaff because the people who actually have real substance and are doing, I mean, there are some amazing companies that have been lost through the years that it's just really unfortunate. The timing was off, but I think in times like this, like you really see who has it together and who doesn't. Um, and I think that timing is, timing is everything. And, and there's no time for fluff in times like this either. Um, yeah. Yeah. 
heard a couple of times. It's definitely the, the year of the hustlers. My <laughs> friends that, you know, just hit the ground running and put their head down and didn't complain. You know, complaining was not their strategy. And they just found all sorts of new opportunities to make money and started all sorts of new businesses. I have a friend in Nashville who literally opened up three different restaurants during the pandemic and Whoa. he's thriving. So, I mean, no matter what industry is, you know, just making sure they keep your head down, stay focused and you can definitely accomplish so much even in times like this. Yeah. Well, it was like historically when we look at times and pandemics, some of, some of the most creative work, some of the most just amazing work comes out of times like these when people are just pushed to their limits. Um, that's not to say that it's easy. Yeah, right. It's not necessity. It's like the coolest things come from the impossible. Yeah. And like going back just a little further from for not not necessarily a gentler time, <laughs> but, you know, definitely not a time in the midst of the pandemic um, because, I, you know, going through, well, working in cannabis is always a challenge. And, and I'm looking forward to the day where there's it's treated like a regular industry because we really, we really need that. But um, even before that, even before you got into working in cannabis, what attracted you to cannabis? I would say like growing up in Tennessee originally was never something that I wanted to get into. I was like really into sports and basketball and I went to like a charter school or magnet school. So most of my friends didn't smoke, but as I went to college, of course, I tried it in high school, but then when I went to college, I started learning more about, like, the qualities of cannabis, and, of course, California flower goes everywhere, and when I found some California flower, I was like, oh, this is really, really good. Medicinally, it was really good. I liked just the cultural aspects, my friends, um, just the conversations we would have and the people we would meet, definitely a networking um, type of experience, right? So just the networking that was involved, how it felt. And I was like, I instantly knew that this was not as bad as they said it was. And I don't feel any sort of like compelled, uh, you know, I don't feel compelled to go commit crime or do anything crazy, which was like literally how I was raised like in Dare and in Nashville, Tennessee, you know, just say no. And all drugs, were the same to me growing up, you know, whether it was meth or weed, they don't tell you the difference. So I definitely had like a different opinion of cannabis until I was in college. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I always thought, oh, I don't want to be a pothead. I don't want to like be one of those unproductive stoners. And like, I just was underneath the totally wrong stigma of, you know, just where the, the government has, uh, has convinced me that, smoking weed is bad and smoking weed makes me unproductive and all of these things. And when I really went out and just learned for myself and experienced for myself, I thought to, there's a lot of things in life that maybe that I want to experience that, you know, are taboo or have a bad stigma just because the regulatory framework in whatever city decided that that was bad for whatever unjust reason, most likely. So it was really eye opening just for a conscious you know, expression of like, how do you want to live in life? Do yeah. you want to be beneath the thumb or do you want to like experience things that, you know, aren't harmful? And for me, like cannabis 
if you look into the science at all and you look into, you know, the lethal dose of alcohol versus the non-existent lethal dose of cannabis, and it's just obvious how unjust and unscientific the laws are, right? The laws don't match the science in any way. And I would say the majority of people that are in a state like Tennessee that just have to go by the government way are all underneath the wrong impression of the stigma of cannabis still. Mm -hmm. So it was definitely, I always wanted to move to California when I was, um, when I was little, I used to get to come out here. I always wanted to move to California. And then when I got into cannabis, it was just like a no brainer to make sure I get into a state that has legal use and can build some really cool compliant businesses and not have to be so concerned about, you know, the stigma and the local legislation. Yeah. And it seems like. I mean, we we've we've been, although you know, cannabis is definitely popping in other states too. But we've been the epicenter for so long, and so I think like getting involved here is where you can really make an impression through throughout the nation because the coasts of the United States are just so influential on in how everything runs in between. You know, they like to call us the coastal elites, but I think we're just coastal trendsetters more than anything, you know. <laughs> and, then, you know, the whole like critical thought thing, like, you know, if you see that cannabis is is not bad for you, but we've had the stigma, it's like, what else is going on? Like when my uh, my cousin is more like my niece, she's much younger than me. And she was she had an earache and she had gone to dare and uh when they wanted to give her drugs for her earache, she was like, say no to drugs. And I was like, this has gone like way past where it should be. <laughs> Guys, we were talking about crack, like stop it. Just, I, re- I watched this Netflix documentary on Saturday and it was like about the crack epidemic. And it was just talking about, you know, of course, um, Nancy Reagan and the just say no. And that entire, um, you know, political approach to everything. And it was funny how I tell some people this sometimes, but I was in there in Nashville when I was probably in like third grade. Mm-hmm. And I remember getting the spirit award for dare, meaning that I was the most excited person to just say no to drugs that was in the class. And I'm just like, look back on it. And I'm like, Oh, the irony <laughs> and the lies. I hope you kept your t-shirt. <laughs> I know find my like little medal somewhere put it up, hang it up in my office. Right. Um, but yeah, <laughs> it's crazy. I think the more you learn, like even from a cannabis side, like I've been heavy on cannabis, like, you know, for the last 15 years or so, but over the last maybe year, I've been educating myself more on just like psilocybin and microdosing. And now I'm like an avid microdoser where, you know, years ago, if you asked me that, I would say, hell no, I don't want anything to do with that. Like, I'm not trying to trip, you know, and see colors and this and that. But then when you actually do more research and you understand like the wellness benefits in different ways of microdosing where you're not even, you're not even high, you know, you don't even feel it, but you're definitely actively thinking in different ways and being more productive. So it's like, you know, we have to be able to like explore these things. We can't just take the government's word and we know they're not here to help 99% of the time. Yeah, I mean that's that that's a fact. And I think that um you know just the how we are as a society are starting to tor- turn more towards um natural means 
to create shift and relief in our bodies is is really important. I mean, it's I think it the thing that it goes hand in hand with is, you know, the mindfulness portion of it, because I've had people, you know, tell me, oh, I've had this really bad experience, you know, on cannabis. And I'll ask them, well, what did you take and how much did you take? And, you know, what was going on before that? And there's no because because we are seeing, you know, here it's more accepted in California, you know, people forget that no matter what you put in your body, there has to be some mindfulness about it. And that's like even going with like psilocybin. It's like it's it's a wonderful I, I've I've done microdosing myself and I have to say that it's it's helped with my anxiety. It's it's wonderful for that. Um Mm. But people need to like actually know your yeah know your stuff slow. Yeah. Like, <laughs> they were too used. To oh no! Sorry, I interrupted right? you. Like, what did you say? Oh, uh, no, you're fine. I was I was interrupting you. I feel like I was just say it's like the movies um, where you know you see the first time somebody does shrooms and they're like going down some Alice in Wonderland you know rabbit hole and in reality like. That would be the equivalent of, you know, you eating 500 milligrams of cannabis and thinking that that's normal, when everyone has their own, um, you know, level that they need to titrate into their body. And you really have to just know yourself and be mindful. Like you're saying, you know, there's always the balance. Yeah. Yeah, there is always the balance. And that's for me as a, as an educator, when I do uh, trainings with healthcare professionals, they're always asking for exact dosages and exact ratios. And what I always tell them is, you know, you come to my class, you read a good book on cannabis education, you check out research, you're getting back a report back about how the majority of human beings respond to the substance. And in research, it's even a smaller pool than that. And if you're not dealing with humans and you're dealing with rats, you're dealing with mostly male rats. So it's like... Yeah, you can use those as a foundation, but then you the important thing is figuring out how it works for you because we're walking chemistry experiments. Right. Totally. Yeah. So totally. I've experienced like that all the time with C B D where I would have a mom and daughter that both wanted to sleep, but one would take a one to one ratio and the other one would take a twenty to one ratio to get the same effect. So I'm like if you have a family literally with half the same genetics that still have, you know, various responses to this, then, okay, how, how can we really say that one thing will ever work for everyone? Right. And then also just the things that we experience through our lives, because even though, I mean, it's a, it's a long time ago, so there aren't as many people alive who've experienced it, but, um, polio survivors for some reason don't metabolize cannabinoids well. Well, I did not know that. Yeah, it's really fascinating. I've had a couple of people who have come to see me and the first time I was really frustrated because you know, I normally I can help somebody find something that works well for them and then I was talking to a friend of mine who's a physician who's been working with cannabis patients for years. And he told me, he's like, well, that's not unusual. We've actually found that, you know, polio survivors don't respond well to cannabis. And it makes you wonder because, you know, polio affects the nervous system and how the ECS is so closely intertwined with it. Like, 
what's happening there? That's that's the fascinating stuff. Like when you get these issues where somebody's not responding and it's like, well, what's different about their bodies from other people's? Right. That is crazy. Yeah. I just, I find this, that is definitely... you know, you just want to lean in. And you're like, so what happened? What What's going on? <laughs> I want to learn. But Absolutely. When, and, Absolutely. That's so cool though. I'm always, I'm really into the, that and like the, uh, like all the auto autoimmune mm-hmm. um, reactions too. Yeah, those are super interesting for me. It is super interesting, especially because with autoimmune, it's it's really hard uh, to get relief, and a lot of the pharmaceuticals um, have their own gnarly side effects. Oh God, yeah. You know, <laughs> when you watch the commercial, I mean, like. I don't know if gaslight is the right term, but I think that the media does a great job of, uh, you know, making you feel crazy. Oh, and in yeah. those moments, is such a good example. Like, you know, these drugs must be better than these all-natural drugs. But then you watch the commercial and it's got 67 different side effects that they read off, including suicide and diarrhea. And you're like, okay, you don't know if you're going to want to kill yourself or shit on yourself, but somehow this is going to do, you know, this is going to help your allergies. <laughs> it's like something extremely minor. Like, oh, okay, great. Now, you you know, you might die this way, that way, or the other way on these, on these drugs. But it's crazy to think about that, like, people are, we're just kind of so sheepish in all of these ways. We're just like, if the government just put a stamp on it, then that must mean that it's acceptable. Oh, see, I thought it was the sunset and the happy music that went a- Along with the side effects, <laughs> and <made it> better. <laughs> Literally, like the happy faces. Exactly. Happy, happy. I always watch this, exactly. and I'm like, I didn't know somebody could get that. What is that? <laughs> Literally. So Literally. Let's talk about MD numbers. How did how did you start it, and and what did you start with? Um, MD numbers. So that is the culmination of like five years of different types of businesses that we've built and started with the delivery, Marie's delivery and Marie's deliverables in 2015. And we just started there because back then and even now, like delivery is still one of the easiest areas to get started in cannabis versus like manufacturing or distribution or cultivation. Um, and that's kind of like where everybody, you know, your local, your local weed man was just delivering weed to you and everybody's kind of used to that type of business. Um, or my brother and I were very used to that type of business because that's kind of where we come from. And so delivery was just the lowest hanging fruit that made the most sense at the time. And we started that in 2015. And then shortly after we opened up, a Los Angeles location. And when we did that, we were just doing a lot of market research and realizing that in order for us to compete long-term, we were going to need to get some sort of cultivation to scale. So in um, 2015, 2016, we were doing delivery. The end of 2016 and the beginning of 2017 is when we got our cultivation space lockdown and we started cultivating so md farms was our next venture and that includes a 50,000 square foot mixed greenhouse mixed light greenhouse 
and Salinas. And down there we have a nursery and we have um, distribution, processing, and cultivation permits. Oh, wow. And so, yeah, so that one, that is like our aha moment, we kind of call it, where we always knew we needed to cultivate just at some point to get that um, control production somewhere. You know, we couldn't always be at the at the um, mercy of the market, so to speak. But, um, yeah, we went to L.A. and we realized that there was like a $35 cap on a lot of the stores down there and deliveries down there so nothing was more than $35 and we were used to you know 50 60 dollar eights mm-hmm. weed in northern california because people up here used to just like understanding the different cuts and creating cuts and like when something new comes along people are definitely willing to pay for it and so we went down to la and we were like oh man we we are gonna have to cultivate to grow this business the way that we want it and kind of actually make money in the future the way that we see the the shift changing so it's kind of like the pivot game like we've definitely we've been in triple threat stance for the last five years so it's like you know i'm ready to dribble i'm ready to shoot i'm ready to pass i I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow but i've got to say you know just bracing myself for whatever changes that we have to make so when we went into cultivation it was uh Back in pre-Prop 64, Um, so we had local authorization um, from the county of Monterey, and we got grandfathered in over time, but currently, like, you have to come in and be able to pull all these these permits immediately um, and have your building up to code immediately, so, I mean, it's a huge difference when it comes to, like, having everything in compliance on day one versus like the city working with all of the growers that were there and helping us get compliant like over time. So we were able to phase things in piece by piece, which is how we were able to survive over this time because we're just a small business and we've never gotten any outside investment, just family and friends and our own investment. So um, going through that phased approach really allowed us to like stay in the market and be able to exist when prop 64 rolled around. So if we were going to recreate like all of our businesses in prop 64, it would have cost us, you know, a hundred times more, maybe even more than that, than creating everything in prop 215. So it's kind of like you said earlier, like, you know, you got to know when to pivot, but it's really about timing as well so for us we got in in 2015 in the right time and we're able to like figure out a lot of these things in the nick of time like literally it was maybe you know if we would have started a month or two later on the growth and things wouldn't have gone as well but um definitely just being able to to pivot and continue to pivot so those were our first two was the delivery and then the cultivation and then we have just been getting involved of course with bulk sales and distribution which has led down different roads and learning more about distribution so i am working on delivery and distribution in san francisco right now and in that it's basically like the full vertical so you know we want to be able to like 
process the flower, have a nursery, clone. We sell clones um, all the way through, sell the bulk flower, sell the trim, take that trim, get it processed by somebody. They'll sell it back to us for bulk extract. Um, and then we'll take our bulk flower and package it up. We're not currently packaging it up into like a brand right now. We're still selling everything bulk. But the goal is to, in 2021, we're going to put together a budget to be able to package, um, package our own brand, create a couple brands that we want to sell through the delivery service. So it'll kind of just be a full circle of vertical integration. That's awesome. It's it's so it's been so hard for companies to survive, especially because there isn't a lot of access to banking and to be able to to tap into familial generational financial backing is is huge. Because there's, oh, it's everything. Oh yeah, because otherwise it's like if yeah. you let somebody from the outside come in. You just you just don't know what's going to happen. And that's been one of the things that's kind of troubled me with, like, the way equity has gone. Because, oh, yeah. you know, it, it's like we've I feel like a lot of people have been taken advantage in that, like, oh, you're you're an equity applicant. I'd, I'd like to work with you, but you don't get to have a say exactly. in how the business is run. <laughs> what are you it's seeing? really, really... What, what do you say? I was just saying. I, I think I was probably leading into what you were going to say. Anyway, I was going to say, "What are you? What are you oh, seeing?" Yeah. <laughs> totally the same thing. I mean, I think that there's so many equity applicants that are basically set up for failure because of their need to partner with someone so highly capitalized, right? Right. So, of course, naturally, that opens up the door for the sharks and all the predatory interests to come in and thrive especially on the standpoint of like that person being potentially not you know as high of a business acumen which even for me like I didn't have the big business acumen five years ago that I have now and it would have been easy for me to take a bad deal a lot easier back then and so you know a lot of us like people like me are dealing with these deals for the first time so it's very very have a very high chance of just being taken advantage of and then not only that, but just like the business structure, like innately, there's not a lot of businesses that would ever allow an operator to have majority ownership with only split equity. So, I mean, we basically engineered like a structural conundrum ready for corruption, right? Like most businesses aren't going to say, okay, sure. You don't have any money. Okay, no problem. We're still going to let you have 51% and majority control of this business. Like, that's just an anomaly that you really don't find in normal business. Mm -hmm. So why would we create it for equity? Not sure, but that's what we did. And then back to the funding piece where, you know, we're saying, great, we want you to open up, you know, partner with these guys, um, but you don't have any say in the business in reality because you're not putting up any of the money. And it definitely is like what you say. It's like just a, an area that thrives for the opportunity for predatory investors and people to be taken advantage of. And that's really all it's turned into, especially like in Northern California is really large capitalized groups that seek out equity 
And most of them are, they, you know, they intentionally are seeking out different types of equity that they know that are okay with being kind of out of sight, out of mind type of, um, um, let's just say like members of the business Mm -hmm. versus someone that's like, oh no, I want to be the CEO. Because another issue is like, who in the world decided that everyone wants to be a CEO? You know, that's very awkward of (laughs) say, okay, if you want to own a business, like you have to be the CEO of this business. So you can't be the COO. You can't be the CFO. You can't be, you know, the chief operating officer. You have to be the chief, the CEO. So it also didn't create, like we didn't create any other paths. Like we literally just said, oh, if you want to be equity um, and you want to have a business, then here's just, just one path for you. So there's definitely been, you know, in my opinion, a lot of things that could have been better, but it all starts with funding. Um, and even like my brother and I, you know, us being able to get like back then we had to raise a little less than 400000 to start our farm. I mean, now if we wanted to replicate what we have, we'd probably have to raise like over $10 million and it would have never happened. Um, but we... Even just having someone to go and get, you know, 250000 from is a miracle at some times, right? And not only that, but the people that gave my brother and I money, they gave us money because they saw us being successful already in the delivery space. And if we weren't successful in the delivery space, they wouldn't have had faith for us to then be successful in the cultivation space. So... For equity applicants, it's like they don't have that. You know, none of this is their own money. Um, normally, it's not their own money. There's two sole proprietors that I know of in San Francisco that basically did everything themselves and figured it all out themselves. And that's one guy who's yet to open his name is Harry. And then this um, super amazing chick named Reese Benton who's open. Oh, She's got Reese is amazing. Posh Green. Yeah, so Reese is like, you know, one of my favorite um, success stories to just talk about because she did it all herself, you know, and how hard that is to do. And Reese is really smart. She got a lot of deals. Um, She made good deals, made good decisions, and then she's able to autonomously be successful. Perry had um, some investment, so he, he was able to do, you know, he wanted to autonomously own this business without taking corporate investment from predatory lending. But reality is, um, it, if we didn't fund it, you know, then we never intended for it to be successful or we would have funded it. If we, if we, if we're like, Hey, we need to pave the roads, but then we never actually take the budget and earmark any money to transportation to pave the roads. then we never really wanted the roads paved. Right. We were just like, Hey, we want to create something to symbolically, mean this but in reality like we're not going to actually put all of our you know all of our regulatory rules and framework and money behind it we're just going to make you know we'll make an oversight committee and then we'll do this and that but it's just typical politics as usual right where if something is going to be successfully implemented then it has to be funded and we watched you know nearly every city in america not fund their equity program and you know at first you're like oh my gosh yay they have an equity program like i'm stoked so many cities don't have an equity program and in my mind it's like 
there should not be any cannabis sold if there's no equity program, because that's literally just taking the entire industry and giving it to corporate America as fast as, as fast as we can with people still sitting in jail for cannabis, and it's just, you know, not the structure that I would prefer. But I think like at the end of the day, the funding is, you know, the key. And that's the piece that we still are missing. Oh, yeah. Well, and I, th- I think part of, too, is we have people in positions of authority that are making uneducated decisions because, like, Absolutely. Uh, I was one of the co-chairs of the San Francisco Legalization Task Force, <laughs> and I am on the San Francisco Oversight Committee, and it's amazing to, like— Hilarious. It's the stuff that happens. I didn't know that. Oh yeah, yeah. When you said <laughs> I was like, talk more shit, but I didn't. I was like, oh my, but not even talking shit about you guys. Like, oh no, no, to, it's like, cool. How do you make an oversight committee with no power? Right. Like it's all like false, false, fake, fake. I think the last um, I watched the last meeting in October, where where um, Nina's sitting there begging for the budget to have one more meeting to even follow up on all the things that the oversight committee was supposed to accomplish, but the budget literally was like, Oh, we, I don't know. Okay, fine. You know, Nina, we'll give you one more meeting, but we, we really don't have the money. And I'm like watching this, like, how do we actually protect any of these, you know, regulatory, like all the regulatory frameworks that we've written, how can we protect it if we really don't even have a budget to protect it? Right. Right. Well, and it really shows like how much of a priority it is. And that was even, yeah, when that committee was proposed, it, it um, was very political how it actually originally got shot down because people were like, oh, we're fine. Legalizations happen. And I was like, listen, we have so much more work to do. And not only that, but we're really, we were really lucky at the time that, you know, the head of the office of cannabis was an ally and that's not always going to be the case you know it, right it could be that somebody's right. against it and we have like the fact that there wasn't enough funding to go through the end of the year was really poor but we have a lot of disconnects i mean there was a meeting it was like last spring where the controller's office did a report on the price program of cannabis in san francisco and they said that the price went up um, program since legalization and that it was due to competition. And that's when I started, I, I just, <laughs> I had to butt in. I was like, there's never, it, it, you're, I can't believe that you're saying this. The con- the controller's report is saying this because we've never had prices go up on anything due to competition. It has to do with the fact that we have all these crazy hoops that we have to go through the price of right. real estate Which is has high. created the least amount of competition. Oh my god! And the access—it's you it's, know, yeah, yeah, like. And I got quoted because of that. Like, and that's so funny. I'm like, well, how would this? You know, when they were relating like year prior to this year, like, no, like there's literally less competition. Yeah, there is how less the competition. Price there's no, there's we're in a in a field that should be actually cultivating critical thought no critical thought is being used yes literally and that's could not agree more that's a sad thing like even prior to 64 passing and legalization happening we had been talking about the fact that when people are working in the illicit market and 
they were found out that what we should be doing instead of taking people's crops and prosecuting is we should be giving them paperwork as to how to successfully get into the legitimate market because these are entrepreneurs (laughs) plain and simple just entrepreneurs that cannot survive in this market and we're not making it a friendly place to be it's not creating more jobs and when we're looking at equity there were so many times i was hearing people talk more about equity in hiring a diverse workforce rather than creating right business owners right 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 and even with that like you know i'm super close to miss Ange. um i do tons of work with success center and i'm just kind of like a they're awesome silent advisor pro bono for anyone and everyone that has a question or wants me to look at a contract or yada 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 and like that's exactly what i see over there is just like we are kind of like here suspended in this place and we expect, you know, these like someone to know something. It's like, you don't, my dad used to always say, you don't know what you don't know. Right. Right. And we've got, you know, all these people that are passing different regulatory frameworks, whether it's in San Francisco or statewide, and they don't understand how cannabis actually moves through the supply chain or what it actually takes to open up a business or what struggles, you know, the equity, community seeing and it's just very blatant and like i think that that's like kind of what i want to see like well how do we change these things right like where (laughs) we see all these ways that a lot of this is wrong but how where do we go and how can we start to make it right i think that is definitely like one of the biggest struggles that i kind of see especially in san francisco because I kind of look at things like, like my first delivery deal is when I first learned about, you know, K1 partnership flow through tax liabilities. And so one of the first things like I ask or want to see is, you know, is your business an LLC or is your business a corporation? And so, you know, let's say that you're doing a deal with Shrine Group and you're opening up a busy store and that I'm just hypothetically speaking right now, not to say <laughs> this is the way it is, right, right. Um, but let's... <laughs> say you're you know you're an LLC instead of a corporation that means that you are responsible for your pro rata shares and as an equity like this and like the cohort of equity like we're talking about a lot of things as like pre-permitting process you know how do you get permitted how do you get through the permitting process how do you find people that are good partners how do you make money but then once all those things happen like, there's going to be more catastrophes than we could ever plan for in the future. You know, we're like, oh, yay, we're going to open up equity, open up equity, open up equity. But then we're not looking at, you know, the tax liabilities, the tax implications. Like, on my delivery service, I pay more in taxes than I make as an owner just because I don't actively work on that business. So I'm not paid. I just owe my ownership share at the end of the year. So every year I pay to own that business. And there's tons of futuristic, you know, tax implications that will be coming down the line for everyone. And like, if you can't get along before that happens, imagine what's going to happen when people are suing everybody and going to court and dealing with all these extreme cases. But no one's really talking about it right now. You know, it's like, ah, you know, just get open. Yeah. Get open, get your business, 
and then even and I will say this, like even cases specifically like with Shrine Group actually, where Cindy Della Vega, like Miss Ann just close with her and success in her and like she was, you know, she's the CEO of that business, yet they were like requiring her to do a lot of things that were like something you would require of an employee, you know, like, well, you need to clock in and out and you need to make sure you're taking your breaks at this time. And you need to, they're like, wait a minute, like I'm the CEO here. Why am I like clocking in and clocking out? You know, like why this and that, I could go on with these stories, but the fact of the matter is just like making sure that like equity is actually educated and make sure that they know, exactly what their you know what control they have in the business and how it needs to be set up and then set it up in that manner and then make sure that you're actually getting techie yeah during these times because you know like my i'm good friends with kareem and like we helped him recently finally get paid and i'm just like you know how long have you been going through all the pre-permitting stuff over a year has you know shrine group given you a dime no and it's just like I don't like what's going on here. <laughs> no, I don't like it either. So bad, like just so dirty. And even for him, when he goes back and he's able to negotiate his salary, it's like, are these really the type of people you want to be working with? You know, like this is the type of stuff that you have to do is look over your shoulder on every little thing to make sure that you're getting your fair share. Because if they can definitely not give it to you, then, they, then they're not going to give it to you. And I think that's the thing to even see, like, is like, We've gotten some equity storefronts open, but, like, who are they under? You know, like, what's the Shrine Group care about? Like, do they care about Cindy? Do they care about Kareem? I don't know. But they care about selling more Stizzy. That's that's what we know. Yeah. And the list goes on and on. I mean, in many ways, it seems like, and this is something that I was afraid of when we were first discussing equity, um, because, you know, one of the big things that we they were talking about was when we were saying, you know, how do we how do we tar- target the population that we want to help benefit? And it's like you couldn't talk about race. You know, it's like right. we can't talk about the fact that the most persecuted people in this whole thing have been black folks. We're not going to have that conversation. Right. And we're not going to say, right. you know, we're going to. It feels gonna... a little dirty. It does. It's like because they do that loophole of people who have been <laughs> living in areas impacted by the war on drugs. That's what we're going right. to say. Okay. Right. So... I think that I was like uh, watching the Compton equity, um, like one of the city council meetings for Compton and like literally like they're just like people and they're going crazy. Like how in the city of Compton are every single store for an application in Armenian? How are there no, no, like, you know, such a small application for black people? Yeah. What yeah. is that all about? I like, mean, that's crazy. It's, it's unreal, right? It's like, what are, well, you know, oh, we can't, we can't do this for, you know, like a, like an unaffirmative action or something. It's just like, no, the point is affirmative action, actually. The point is, like, you arrest 89% of black and brown bodies more than, you know, the, uh, anyone else. And those people should benefit from what they've been going to jail for all this time. It's very black and white. It's not very difficult. No, it's not. And I, I just felt like the but, way that these have been set up has really, like, 
you know, and you talk about like sowing seeds for the future, it's it it's actually just sown the seeds for predatory behaviors. Yeah. And totally. That, that's gotta stop. It it does. Like what do we do, sir? That's the question. Yeah. <laughs> well I, like I think I mean it's so crazy too because like do you know or have you heard of High Purpose, High Purpose, Damien? I have it. Damien's his name. That's a super cool dude. He's like 100% community activist, like has a um, nonprofit called Us for Us where he like feeds elderly, he feeds the youth, he like educates the youth. He does all sorts of stuff basically in, like Bayview and Fillmore to like keep kids out of doing whatever bad stuff. And he rolled it into cannabis a little bit where like started something new rather where it's called High Purpose where he has um, an equity brand because it's equity and he it's called the give back buds where basically he takes the majority of the profits and just puts it back into the community and um he just he'll he will have the second storefront in the hate where he partnered with harborside uh-huh. and you know it's kind of like one of those super catch 22s a little bit even for him as he hits me up and he's like marie like what do you think? Like, is this bad? Like, is being partnered with Harborside bad? And I'm like, I don't know, but lost, but last prisoner project is bad. I can tell you that. But I don't know about the, you know, how you feel about the Harborside connections, but um, it's just the irony of like, how can people like that succeed autonomously? Right. Like whether Harborside is good or bad for him is neither here nor there. It's just the fact of like, how can, you know, even someone who's got so much good stuff going on for them be supported autonomously without having to partner with someone that's predatory? Yeah. And when I think about it, I can, and, you know, I don't know every single business, but off the top of my head, I can count on one hand the amount of black owned businesses that I know in cannabis. And that's that. That's that's really like, weird. <laughs> literally, you know, it's okay to be criminalized for it, but for whatever reason, they don't see you know you worth being someone that can run a business. It's very, very, very. I don't know, racist yeah, behavior. It is, and and that's and one of the things that I think of too is even even when we're doing you know. There are resources available, like you know, I love success centers. They've they've worked with my, we've my company has worked with them, and you know we, it's it's like there needs to be education and support. But beyond that too, it's like I before I worked in cannabis, I worked in nonprofit, and I worked in I worked in civil rights, but I also worked in how to create a generational wealth for families because we learn our money habits from what we grow up with. And so, you know, we can, we might be successful, we might make money, but whether we keep it and grow it for our future generations is another thing altogether. And like, you know, like in times like, like, like what you and your brother went through, the fact that you had family to be able to work with on, you know, raising funds so that you didn't have to deal with a lot of this nonsense is, is a very important thing. So, you know, when we get people set up for success in their businesses, 
I think another really important thing is about, you know, financial health and well-being and how do we, you know, create resources for people to have good relationships with money so that they can create the generational wealth for their families to go to continue on. Because we all have research has shown, you know, it's like we always each one of us as we go through our lives, whether it's when we're younger or whenever something will come up. And it only takes one good emergency to throw us flat on our ass. But the thing that right. saves people is, you know, having family that's able to step in and help or having that generational wealth to help boister us so that we can we can get past it. So how do we not only I think one of the things that we really need to look at and, and people always look at me like I'm nuts, but it's like in addition to giving people the opportunity to start businesses and the tools to be successful in it, we need to look at the aftercare, like the how, how what's your relationship with money and how can we help you create something sustainable so that your family and the generations that come beyond you can benefit from all your hard work? Definitely. I think that is multi multifaceted. It is. Right? Because I think it goes back to, and I, I like, for me, it always goes back to this. It's just like, where's the money coming from, right? Like, right. me and my brother, not only were we able to get some funding, but we were able to get it from supporters. Right. You know, like, if, like, we didn't pay my investors back on time. Like, I don't even know. Like, there's very few investors in our early career from cultivating back when we literally did not know how to grow weed at all and were failing miserably harvest after harvest to then, you know, have to pay you back and then, oh, no, you're going to sue me because I missed the payment. You know, we weren't, that wasn't the position that we were in. So we had these supporters, right? So, like, even deeper maybe than, like, the fact that there is all this outside investment coming in for these types of people but like, where does the outside investment come from? And does that group actually care even about like that locality? You know, like if, you know, there's a company, I mean, I could, you could go anywhere. If there's a company out of LA that's coming into San Francisco, there's a company out of Florida that's coming into San Francisco. There's a company out of Tel Aviv that's coming into San Francisco. If there's investors that are Russian, there's investors that are Chinese, there's investors that are all these international type of investors like at the end of the day sarah they don't care about us yeah they don't care about you know the reese's of the world succeeding they don't even care about like the san francisco localized community these are not people that have come with good intentions even when it comes to the local economy and unfortunately because of like america's capitalistic ways and like just bending over for the corporation it's like Amazon in a way, right? Like we we're okay with certain things happening and making sure that, okay, if Amazon comes to town, we're like, yay, jobs, but they don't actually flip into the second chapter where it says all these jobs are minimum wage and all of our management is going to come from Seattle and all of our da 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 is going to come from Seattle. And actually we're not even going to pay taxes. So not only are you not going to make any tax revenue off of this situation, but we're going to employ people at very, very, very minimum wage jobs, and we're going to act like we did something good and be rewarded for it. You know, so it's like multifaceted, right? We're like, we want 
localized healing, essentially. You know, we want local communities to be able to, like, have generational wealth and create generational businesses for and from cannabis. But where is the money coming from is the first question, right? Like, where is it coming from? Is it in... And secondly, like, if it's not a supporter, you know, who, what does this person really care about? Oh, they just care about making money. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, what happens if they're not making money? Who is, who's going to get screwed first? Oh, the equity person, of course. <laughs> like, well, what protections does this person have? Zero. Okay, now we're just down, like, the rabbit hole of just utter corruption that, you know, this country is unfortunately thriving off of currently. But it's that's, like... You know, for me, it's like, I think about cannabis, but I don't really just think about cannabis. It's like, if it was that easy, then why don't these things currently exist in the current structures right. where you can go and get loans, where you can go and get real estate, where you can walk into a bank and say, hey, I am a plumber. Why are there no black plumbers? I used to, I used to run a, a plumbing warehouse, which makes me why it's even funnier joke than it was but like literally there's no black plumber right like i want to sit there but like i mean one black plumber and i'm like oh my gosh like this was in redwood city like down towards palo alto but i'm like why if it was that easy sarah we wouldn't be sitting here having these phone calls you know like we wouldn't like i always like sometimes i'm on different panels with people that are like extremely radical and I'm like, I don't have to think radically. I just have to look out the window. Right. You know, and I see like three homeless people and I can think about like, man, one's probably a veteran because we don't take care of our veterans. One's probably a minority and the other one's probably mentally ill because we don't care about any of those people. And why is that? And what needs to change for that to happen? You know, especially in a place like San Francisco where it's like the utter have, 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 haves. And then the other half, 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 have not. Right. And you just see it like, I think, you know, it's magnified here as, you know, other places. So for me, it's like, okay, we'll go back to, you know, just w- if it was that easy, why does it not exist right now? You it, know? Yeah. Well, and it's, that's the thing. It's not because we have years of oppressive policy to wade through and they're looking at they're looking at cannabis as a panacea to save the government with spending and like things in big picture but what they're not realizing is that you know we are only as strong as our most vulnerable member of society and right you know we have people who don't necessarily you know wouldn't be vulnerable if they actually got a chance to do the stuff that they would excel at. I mean, when you were mentioning like the plumbing, I used to, I used to work in the trades. I used to work in the elevator industry, and everybody was white, except for a couple of people that worked in the office and one person in the field. That's cool. And it's like you look yeah. at that and you're like, okay. I mean, hell, I didn't even realize until. Told again, like, yeah, I didn't realize. Like, I mean, this is probably still kind of opinionative, but I think it's a fact at this point. But, like, I didn't even realize that unions were created because of all of the black and, like, brown war vets that came back and were taking white people's jobs. I'm like, oh, that's why they created unions? Like, that's why you can't fire someone that is, like, the worst worker in the world because they're white? Ah, crazy. 
See, that's it's like when you like drill in like historically, and no one wants to look at that because that makes people feel bad. You know, it does. It makes me feel bad. It's yeah, yeah. It makes everybody feel bad, and then it makes people feel guilty who have like given into it. It's like I always say, yeah. you know, if, if we bonded more on the social, socioeconomic inequalities that we have, they we the whole the whole racial element is just it, it's insane. It's like we all want the same thing. We all want to we all want to be safe. We all want to be able to pay our bills. We all want to be healthy and heard and loved. And it's like, you know, there's no, no one, it's, there's, when you really look at it, where some people have so much, it's like, it honestly wouldn't take anything away from them to be able to give a little more so that everybody could be in a good place. And I know I'm being pie in the sky. Like I get it. No, I like it. I agree. <laughs> I agree completely. I, but it's, it, and we should that... be able to look at cannabis as like cannabis is one of those opportunities as a new industry to be able to create that culture and to have like, you know, people being able to have abundance, but still have compassion and accessibility and, and the whole, you know, critical thought portion of it. I mean, we, we're critical thought is discouraged because it's, it what it's what raises people up. Mm-hmm. Way more critical thought. Yeah. I think there's so many pieces to it too. Like there's like where we know we want to be. And where we where we know we even were with Prop 215, because during Prop 215, like I was on, a guy said this recently, and we were self-regulated better than we are regulated by the state and by the local counties. And I don't even say that in some like pie in the sky way, but like even lab testing, there's more dirty cannabis now that we've allowed like corporate America to run into this industry than there ever was before. And the old dispensaries like um, Berkeley Patients Group I love BPT. back in 2015, they required lab testing. I remember trying to go by there and sell them. Um, right before I started the delivery, I was like working with this herbal um, supplements company, which I just thought it was the coolest thing. But we had like CBD pills and we had sleep pills with CBN in there. And this was back in 2015 and I was going around the, you know, BPG and all these places. And I, I like looked in my notebook the other day just for like giggles. And I saw like, go back to BPG with lab tests. You know, that was 2015. Like yeah. the best places were self-regulating themselves better than the state currently regulates us. And it allowed for a lot of these, you know, just unsavory corporate companies to come in and try to like I don't know grow subpar cannabis and do all these things right and then another issue I see it's like just a big issue is like how we we criminalized the behavior of course but then when we decided that this this behavior was not criminal anymore we didn't create any path from one to the other right you know like we were like okay if you were selling weed illegally, then good luck getting a permit to sell it legally. <laughs> Instead of like actually valuing like the insight and the, like the business knowledge that that person has, which is actually priceless, 
especially compared to like, you know, a Monsanto or someone coming in. But like, I kind of think about it like hackers, like NSA and the natural, you know, like the national security, they look for these hackers that can penetrate these firewalls because they know things that no one else knows. And they, and they have such unique experiences, right? And they're valued. But for some reason, when we created this entire um, catastrophe in some ways, like we, like my first delivery is a good example. It was based in Redwood City. Redwood City decided they did not want to offer local, local use authorization. They said, hey, you got to go to the state. So my first delivery, if we wouldn't have like reached out to this group in San Francisco to move the delivery and stay compliant and lose a bunch of money in our soul a little bit, then, you know, Redwood City wasn't going to help us be compliant. And not only that, but like no one was helping us be compliant. Like I spent my entire 2017 wondering how in the hell we were going to operate legally in 2018. Yeah. Like all I did was like, oh, shit, I missed the deadline, like, in Oakland. And, like, I didn't know anything about anything at this time. You know, I just had my one business, had my seller's permit, had my license, like, doing my deliveries, like, not really understanding where I need to go and find property and who I need to talk to and, like, how I can get a delivery permit. I was just like, I need to partner with someone because I don't have all, – all of my money was going to the farm – we were just like the farms broke the deliveries supply, you know, putting all the money to the farm and like all we want to do is stay legal. And there was literally no avenue for us. That's that's the biggest fucking disconnect. In this industry. Huge. Huge. It is. And it's it's one of those things where it's it's only common sense. And so all I can think is that you know, it's greed and it's who the politicians are letting bend their ears. Because even with 64, when we weren't supposed to be allowing large farms, which is something that put my mind a little bit at ease with all this. And then that mm -hmm. went out the window. It's um, The gap went out the window so fast. Oh, it did. It went out the window so fast. And this is, it's it's this whole thing about, this is, it's... It's our national sickness under a microscope in an industry. I mean, yes. and that's, yes. that's what we yes. got to work on. And we're the micro of the macro. We are. We are. And that's one of the. And, we, and we, we're watching it like rapid. Yeah. Like rapid. Like all of these things have happened so rapidly. I feel like if we could. One one of the things that I've noticed in the past few years is when people get really, and I'm talking more about consumers, get really upset about the prices, availability, how long it took after legalization was passed that we were able to allow adult use cannabis. And I found myself giving people what I used to call stoner civics 101. And I was like, we don't understand how powerful we are as a people to be able to make change when people's jobs are on the line because our votes count. Right. And I think that right. there needs to be more mobilization of people because way more civic, way more civic engagement. Um, and that's, I mean, that yeah. was why I got on task forces because I was thinking, you know what, this stuff is going to be crazy. People are going to get involved that will just have their own needs you know, that they want to have filled and we need to have richer conversations about this. But when, you know, it's 
we have to change the way our government works, and it's not just with cannabis. Mm-hmm. I agree. And how the do- whole thing needs to be just collapsed and rebuilt from the people. I mean, I, I went to school for political science, right? Uh-huh. And all I ever wanted to do is sell weed. And I'm now engaged more with politics than I ever wanted to be. <laughs> like, I'm like, this is ridiculous. Like, I took an internship at the Tennessee State Capitol when I was in college, and I realized, oh, I do not want to be involved with, like, you know, bottom, uh, like, the civics, especially in Tennessee. I mean, like, basically, like, there was House representatives. Like, I was a clerk for the House. And there were just health representatives, of course, their entire jobs was to keep any progress from being made. And it would just be, you know, days of filibusters. And I'm just like, oh, my gosh, like, this is really local government. Like, this is insane. Yeah. Nothing will ever, ever get done. Like, this is ridiculous. And then getting into cannabis, fast forward, and I'm like, wow, this is so political. Like, I'm not even sure how that how my life even turned into this. But now it's just. We really have to just build it, break it down and rebuild it from scratch, which sounds like, you know, the scariest thing to every politician in the world. But, I mean, at the end of the day, we just have, you know, politics is supposed to be a public servant to the people. Right. And at this point, we have gotten so far away from that, it's it's completely mind-boggling. You know, it's I think it's like a... Once again, if it was that easy, you know, it it would be done. One of the uh, studies that I did while I was working at the Capitol was just something as simple as, like, you know, out here we can get five cents for recycling our bottle. Yeah. Well, in the South, that is unheard of, and it will never exist because Coca-Cola doesn't want it to exist because Coca-Cola and the aluminum guy are best friends, and they want to mine more aluminum until they die, and... Long story short, even something like the Keep America Beautiful campaign is actually owned by (laughs) Coca-Cola. And I was like, you're just researching this, getting my mind blown. And I'm like, then we did a uh, survey for everyone in the state of Tennessee. Like, you know, Republicans want to be able to recycle bottles. Democrats wanted to be able to recycle bottles. I mean, like 89%, 91%. And we still could not pass the bill. And to this day, I did that internship in... 08 now so you know 12 years later we still don't have a bottle bill and it's just like how does like how do we elect these people who don't actually vote in the ways in which we ask them to vote yet we keep them in office year after year right well and then it has you know we have the things that they're considering corporations as people we need to have like we need to have like an (laughs) equity lobby yes People call me from all over the United States, like on the regular basis. And they're like, Marie, I'm in Mississippi. Like, what do I do to get an equity program here? Marie, I'm in da 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 What do we have to do to get an equity program here? And I'm like, you have to lobby. Yeah. Like, someone has to go and make them do it. They're not going to just create an equity program. Like, I have so little faith right now, especially in, like, the Moore Act and the way that they added those amendments at the <sighs> end that basically end equity programs. And, like, in my mind, I'm like, yeah, we need to be lobbying to make it mandatory that any and every city that comes online has to have equity permits. Yeah. Period. Like, it should be a federal enforcement. And then I'm like, oh, this is such a joke. They're about to do the literal opposite. 
Like, they're literally like, wait a minute. Oh, you've been convicted for weed? Oh, you can't run a weed business. How does that even, you know, how, like, that can't be a reality. No, it's the perpetuation of institutionalized racism. I think a city, um, like, I couldn't agree more. In a city that, like, just opened up their applications that I'm super interested in because I used to live in Redwood City. Mm -hmm. But I think Redwood City is, like, a good example of, like, we literally have one of the counties in the largest consumer state for cannabis, like one of the most key counties, going from dry to wet. Like, there's been no dispensaries allowed in San Mateo County since, I think, 2010 was when they shut down the last one. And, like, delivery data shows you how active San Mateo County is for cannabis. It's one of the largest consumers in cannabis there is. And they're only going to open up six storefronts, and they hired a third-party um, called HDL to do the application scrubbing and who they're going to admit. And I'm just sitting here like screaming in my head, like this entire city is about to go and no one is going to say anything about equity. I think in their application, they had like one sentence about it of any sort. And it just like kills me. I'm like, no one's talking about it. No one cares about it. But in reality, it's the biggest bubble that's about to pop in California. Right. And they were some of the biggest NIMBYs on it, too, because, like, mm-hmm. you know, I, I, mm-hmm. I don't know if you know this, but I'm the, I'm the public education officer for the apothecarium. So for years, I was behind. I know mother. nothing. Actually, like, I do so many of these with Zoe that I, I'm terrible and I need to, like, <laughs> research more. But the minute that you, like, the minute you said that, like, usually I'm talking to someone in, like, New Orleans or something, right? Uh-huh. And the minute you said this, I was like, oh, shit, like, this is my stick. Like, this is local. Like, you're in San Francisco, I'm in San Francisco. Like, oh, no, I was like, oh, you're on the oversight committee. Like, oh, gosh, like, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Literally at the mouth of the horse, like, of the water of the stream coming down and, like, there's no water to drink. What's going on here, guys? Like, oh, we have yeah. so much to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> like literally, like I was, I was like, I was, I'm like, man, this could we, I could, this could be my entire like week. Like I'm like Sarah, <laughs> what do we do? I know. What do we do? Well, and that's the thing. It's like we, for all of the, um, for all of the work that people have been doing to get rid of like oversight committees and stuff, they're really needed, but they need to have power. They need to have power to actually be yeah. able to make change. And like when I would get so many people behind like even even though I'm I'm an officer of the company it's like I had been behind that bar for eight years and I'd have people you know coming in from the peninsula being like you know I'm tired of coming all the way down here to get stuff when you know when are you coming over there I'm like when you get politically active and you start demanding you know that it happen because it's up to you it's not up to me it's not up to it's not up to the owners of the company I work for it's up to you Totally. And that's, I think... Especially, like, the NIMBY stuff, too. Yeah. You're like, I, when I was in Redwood City, I was, like, at one point running my delivery out of my house, and I was looking for an office, but no one would give me an office. And, I mean, like, no one. And I had, like, my attorney write a letter saying that I am, like, a trustworthy individual, rent me an office, and I brought in receipts of, like, square credit card transactions for 30 times the price of the office in a month and they wouldn't give me an office. And so I was like in my house 
dealing with all this stuff, my HOA was certain we were like selling cocaine out of it or something. Like, <sighs> I don't know what they thought. They called the undercover police on me. Like, one of my good friends came over to get like three cushy punch one day, and literally, like, this unmarked van pulls down the street and like six undercover police hop out on him. Why? Because he's black. And he was the only black person that walked in my house that day. And they hopped out. They did this whole thing. He's like, my medical card's here. All I have is cushy punch. They're like, we don't care about the cushy punch. (laughs) (laughs) We are certain you've got, like, something in your car, you know, whatever it is. And then, like, finally I ended up moving to, like, a storage unit type office and got out of the situation. But, like, literally... Even a city like Redwood City, where I like literally was a business owner there for years and fought with not being able to have any protection, even though I'm paying taxes. And like ah, now the city comes online and I'm like, man, I don't even know if I'll be able to open up down there. Right. Right. And that's that's and like I don't like I'm not equity in like a sense of the term, you know, like, of course, not of course, but I've been arrested for cannabis once. My brother's been arrested for cannabis. Like, we, we are definitely people that have fought the war on drugs in all these capacities, but it's like, we will lose every time to the cookies and the Kalivas and, you know, those guys that are opening up there. See, and as a legacy business, you should have first dibs. And I had a business registration permit for cannabis in Redwood City in 2017. Yeah, that's the major disconnect. Legacy businesses, people who have been working, you know, in the pre-legalization market, they should all, they should all have a leg up. It's, it's so much. We have so much. I think that, like, there's two, this pie that we have in the sky, right? Where we're like, on one side, we have legacy operators and like, how do we get legacy operators in? And then in that pie, we have a division of, like, profitability, of course, where, like, if I'm trying to convince one of my friends that sells hella, hella, hella weed in the black market to come to the white market and I run the numbers for them, they're not sexy, you nope. know, compared to what they have because of, we're overtaxed, of course. And then you've got the other pie in the sky of equity where we have, you know, people that have clearly been affected by the war on drugs and disenfranchised and like are in communities where we clearly have banking issues and we clearly have real estate issues. And how can, you know, my thought was like, I went through this one like thing and I was like, all right, if I was going to create like a task force, like federally, how could I force realtor, like people who own real estate to rent to a quote unquote equity. And I'm like talking to one of my good friends that's an attorney in Tennessee. And she's like, you can't. And I'm like, you're right. I can't. So what can we do? And she's like, the only thing you can do is if there was like tax incentives, right? Like there should be tax incentives for different types of real estate to rent to equity. But you know, how can that be created? And where does that come from? And how does something like that even, you know, what does that look like? And then I started looking more into like the 1970s Banking Reinvestment Act, where they said, obviously, we're not loaning money to minority communities. So we are going to make it mandatory that every banking institution in that area has to give back, I think, 10% to that community. And I'm like, then I did this huge project where we dove into all the 
CBA, like the Community Benefit Agreement, that dispensaries have written. And I didn't do it in the Bay Area. I did it in L.A. because my good friend down there is in charge of all this stuff. Uh And I literally called, like, 40 storefronts in L.A. And majority of them, no one even answered the phone, even though, by law, the community liaison has to answer the phone or call back, and they don't. Then the people that did answer the phone, I'm like, can I see a copy of, well, A, do you have a community benefit agreement? And B, if you have one, can I get a copy? And, like, people would just hang up on me. People would say, who are you? And I'm like, I'm just a concerned citizen. Like, I d- did live in L.A. at the time. I'm just like, I'm a, a you know, citizen in L.A., and I just want to find out this information. And they're like, click. So yeah. then I just look at it, I'm like, okay. So we had them promise the world to all these cities or promise certain things to these cities. And then no one is even holding them accountable to a making sure that information is visible and available, except San Francisco with our equity program, which is somewhat available and visible, but these community benefit agreements that every storefront wrote are not available. And no one is making sure that anybody is being accountable for those things, for hiring locally, for workforce development, like, I think Miss Ange and I were talking one day, and I think, like, ease was our current topic. And the 10 first equity hires of any of the ease establishments were all gone. So it's like, you know, you're promising you're going to hire these people, you're going to train these people, and you're going to give them work, you know, not development like a minimum wage job, but you're actually going to grow them into a management position or, you know, continue to have some sort of upward mobility in your company. But when you look at the data, you see that they're all fired. Right. Or they quit. Right. Because of whatever reason. Well, and it says a lot about the culture either way. Huge, right? Yeah. And the turnover in this industry right now is just sensational. It's, like, it is, and that's, that's a sad thing, especially like on the dispensary front. It's um, because there are uh, – I, I don't understand like how people can spend eight-plus hours of their life in a position where they're not feeling like they're getting growth and they're not feeling challenged, and that's what we're seeing in a lot of the cultures of these companies. And that's that's something that really needs to change because we need to be looking at these as – as viable careers rather than making money off of the backs of people who are eager to get involved in cannabis. But, uh, Oakland is cool. Oh, I, I love Getting it. Getting a little cooler over there than over here. Well, yeah, I, I did. <laughs> it's a little apocalyptic over here right now. I know. I know. I did 23 years in the city and, um, and then it's like, I came over here and I, and I love it here. Cause it kind of reminds me of, of the San Francisco I fell in love with in many ways, but even a richer experience. But I was just telling my husband, I was like, man, in San Francisco, you could blindfold me and drop me anywhere. And I know how to get home. <laughs> it's, I'm learning. I'm learning. I live on Norfolk street. Oh, okay. Yeah. I know where that is. Like right behind Holy cow. Yeah. Yeah. Um, right behind butter. And like on the other side of slims, they just developed this huge apartment in this alley and it's like, changing the face of this alley tremendously back in the day like around 2000 2001 that alley used to have some great parties i believe it there used to be some... i believe it i moved out here in 2010 so i feel like i missed like the main heyday and then i got like a little bit of the post like i moved out here when of course we were like the end of the recession or like the recession was kind of ending but not really so it was like 
little different. Oh but. yeah, uh, I I got I got to the city when things were starting to heat up with tech, but I I came because as an artist, and so we were like we we're all just like a bunch of of poor hippies. <laughs> Having so parties, cool. dancing to music, so living cool. together, you know, and then you just kind of everything changes. And if you want to stay, you've got to like change and hang on as hard as you can. Yeah, but, it's going to change again tremendously too. With all of the, I feel like commercial office zoning is going to be the emptiest oh space yeah. alive. I kind of wonder how oh many people gosh, will my, end up living in it. Literally, there'll be some cool spaces to live. The, um, Yesterday, I just got, like, or last week, I got the um, call from one of my friends, and her job was literally to clean out this company called 500 Startups, uh -huh. and they had, like, the whole sixth floor on Mission Street right by Target, and they are, like, VC, a VC firm that basically takes private companies public, but they're behind, like, Oracle a little bit, and um, Square, and all these, like, super name brand companies, Zendesk. And literally, we're just, like, cleaning out, like, 500 deaths. They're just like, take whatever you want. Like, wow. I was just mind-blown. And then she's like, yeah, we're doing Twitter's office next because everybody's going to work from home at Twitter. I'm just like, there's going to be no reason to have all this tech office space. Nope. Nope, there isn't. And that's, I remember after the dot-com bust in 2001, because I was, I was working as an operations manager then, and I was looking at you know, a new space for our office. I worked in uh, tech consulting and going into these offices. Cool. Oh my God. Well, it was like people just, it looked like people had just walked away from their desks. Literally. It reminds me of like watching Chernobyl. Yeah. Like how it would be like, I'm like, Oh, the, the lip gloss is still in the drawer. Yeah. <laughs> like, everything, <laughs> everything's literally left. The like, shoes are still under the was. desk. Like, <laughs> literally like yeah. literally i'm like like all the coats are still on the coat rack like the kitchen is still filled like crazy it's you know especially with san francisco it's such a it's such a boom town it's like i always say you know she's fickle she's just as soon to welcome you in as she's to kick your butt out um, <laughs> that <laughs> is the you know so to be Love it and hate it. I know. It'll be super interesting to see, like, how it changes. Because, I mean, this has been going on since the gold rush there. It's like that that vortex of energy. But, like, looking into the future, what are you what – you, what are you expecting? What are you hoping? What are your plans? Right. So many layers to that. Um, I – in my wildest dreams, I'm still I'm I'm looking for real estate still in Redwood City to hopefully apply for retail and delivery. So my that would be like my ultimate dream to get uh, back to Redwood City and get delivery and retail going. Kind of like I'm gonna start with the what and then what I think is going to happen as far as the like farming and cultivation due to the fires this year and of course still due to like the limited amount of permits and not enough cultivation i think prices are going to be worse this year than higher this yeah. year than they were last year 
and like we had our flood come in already like you know the october november december and it's pretty much ending right now so we're starting to see prices go up again um which is like go up faster and probably be steeper than than last year which is interesting makes me happy for the farm wallet of course but it's just very like hey how like how much higher can prices go and actually bear all the burden of the regulatory taxes? So what does that look like? You know, will there be a decrease in consumer interaction with storefronts and then just watching storefronts close in San Francisco recently and like that effect that I've seen, um, I literally think Blackbird distribution went out of business last Thursday and like, so Still watching, you know, some of these corporate and Blackbird might not be extremely corporate, but that's a public company and they were involved with uh, Baker Technology and some other groups. So, like, watching my 2020 happiness, my little bit of happiness, which is watching a lot of these over corporatized companies fail that thought just because they knew how to build an Uber or some, some form of some platform, they could come into cannabis and just win. Uh-huh. And so I appreciate that, and I definitely predict to see, you know, more of these conglomerates not be able to hold on consolidation to continue to take place. Um, goals and hopes, I think, both together. Like, I, my goal is, like, to just be as involved as possible on, like, different relationships that I have that have a lot of potential in San Francisco, like different equity applicants that I'm close with, um, like Damian Posey, for example, watching him um, be able to open up his storefront and get his brand out. And he's in over 10 stores now. I don't know if Bobcarium has it yet, but it might. Um, I don't think so. It's called but... Higher Purpose. Higher Purpose. He's, he's got pre-rolls. Yeah. I think I always get it confused. High Purpose. High, high purpose, just high purpose. High purpose. I'll um, have to check them out. I'll yeah. have to check them out, and I'll have to. Uh, if my buyer hasn't been turned on to him yet, I'll have to do that. Yeah, he's just super. I mean, I've never seen anyone like we call him Action Jackson. Like he's, I've never seen anyone like more in the communities than this man. Like every single day, he's like out mentoring the youth. He's feeding people. He's taking people somewhere. Like he's, it's just unbelievable to watch. Like what he does on a daily basis and then watch him build his brand and then get the partnership with Harborside. So I definitely just want to watch um, more of the people that I mentor, like be able to open up their businesses. And I've got another guy. He's super cool. Um, Alex, who actually need to call back today, but he was going through like final lease negotiations last week with someone. So I'm hoping he's going to be able to open up a storefront and just really be able to like, See tangible work be done makes me happy, yeah. especially with how, you know, like we said, we're in such a microcosm of what really is an expression of, you know, the United States business as a whole. And, you know, so I just like to be able to be as impactful as possible. And I'm working with another super cool chick, uh, Jessica Strange is her name, and we are supporting Success Center on a technical assistance grant that we received. Nice. So from now until August, we'll be doing 14 workshops and like 65 hours individually of one-on-one mentoring. And I'm also doing a 
another like mentoring um, apprenticeship almost program for the delivery where if people want to come in and learn about delivery, they can shadow the delivery for a day and learn just different workflows and see opening and closing and all that different good stuff. So that's definitely like my 2021 in a nutshell. Um, just being able to use the different pieces of success that my brother and I have obtained to like impact more people. So we have um, like on our farm, MD Farms, we do a tour, um, monthly tour for success centers. And back before COVID, everyone was going to Oaksterdam on a scholarship. And then they would come to our farm as like one of the follow-up um, educational experiences. So seeing some people that have come through our farm actually engage in their own farms now and are going through their own permitting processing and like just seeing that makes me happy and using the farm as like a live educational experience for, you know, people that are impacted by the war on drugs like me um, to see like what my brother and I created. And then that they of course have the same opportunity to create it too, even though, you know, we've talked about all the different struggles of then versus now. And so, yeah, like I just definitely like my brother is a, a crazy entrepreneurial man of sorts and he's down there engaging in more cultivation opportunities for us so we're in the process of building out 500 lights of indoor in um the same area down there in monterey county nice and we've got a couple other indoors that we might do and our landlord is also um putting together another 50,000 square feet on our same mixed light farm so we'll be able to go from one acre to two acre in mixed light, which is really the key, like getting to scale in that mixed light as much as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, super crucial for like the future of our business and our companies and being able to control production. So that's definitely a goal and a fixation point of my brother and I to make sure that we just reinvest, reinvest, reinvest. And a lot of it is all centered around cultivation and trying eventually to own real estate in these certain areas so that's what we're going to continue to strive for and yeah i think i don't know if that answers it all but that's hopes dreams the current what i kind of see happening 2021 on the equity front i just want to be as impactful as possible i don't know you know what exactly like regulatory framework will change and i'm definitely willing to be a part of that process as well, but just making sure that you know I can mentor as many people as possible, and yeah, continue to like grow our little our little businesses here. That's awesome. You you put so much time into all all of the aspects of it, and that's we we need we need more people like you on on the ground running, not only doing your work, but helping other people do the work too. Um, if people, yeah. if some of our listeners want to follow you or reach out, how would they, how would they get you on online and social media? Yeah, for sure. Um, our Instagram, well, www.mdnumbers.com is our website and they can reach out on there as well as our Instagram, which is mdfarmca mdfarms.ca California and check us out in those places um no problem it's so funny like we've had such a conversation I'm like I forgot people are gonna listen this is good 
<laughs> I know. I love it. I love. It. I love. I love having conversations with people like you where it just flows. We just like dig into it. That's that's the best. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's coffee coffee thought combos. It totally is. Oh, I was totally drinking my coffee <laughs> while we were talking. <laughs> Me too. And for our listeners out there who want to follow Planted, it's www.plantedwithsarah.com. Um, on IG, Twitter, and Facebook, it's Planted with Sarah. And if you want to just check and see the nerdy things I'm up to on Instagram. It's Sarah Mitropion on Instagram. So, um, Marimo Makret, thank you so much for being on the show. And I really would love to have you back anytime because we have a lot more to dig into, and especially in the new year. Hopefully we'll have some exciting changes for the better, especially on the equity front. Let's, let's, here's to hope. Absolutely. Heck yeah. That's, that's one thing we can do, right? We'll right. definitely have on the up and up and the positive vibes and do some cool and we should get together for oh, another yeah. one. Oh yeah. And for those of you out there, um, just so you know, Planted is twice a month and also part of a part of justice and equity is getting involved as a member of the public. So remember, your vote counts. Get active. Learn more about civics in your area, uh, run for office, join oversight committees, do whatever you can to make a difference in the world because it is up to us in the end. So from me to you, have a wonderful day. And until next time, be good to each other. It's a crazy world out there and get active. Take care. Take care.